The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. Ah! My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic and people call me Whitney Seibold. And we are in for a good one today. Yeah! This is a movie that had a really profound impact on Star Wars that a lot of people don't really know about, a lot of people don't really talk about, and it is an incredibly wonderful motion picture that... We are thrilled to introduce to those of you who haven't seen it or heard of it. It is Akira Kurosawa's Dersu Uzawa. Dersu Uzawa is a story of friendship and respect. Set against the breathtaking backdrop of Siberia's majestic wilderness, this story of an army engineer and his guide is told on an intimate human scale. Side by side, they battle nature's savage forces and its infinite mysteries. Now, we've already covered one Akira Kurosawa film here before on episode zero. We talked about Hidden Fortress, which also had a very profound impact on how the story of Star Wars was told. Uh, but in fact, Kurosawa is kind of all over Star Wars, and yeah. we we probably won't. But if we wanted to, we could also talk about Seven Samurai and Yojimbo as well, if only for the cinematic language. Akira Kurosawa is almost undisputably considered one of the great filmmakers we've ever had of, of all time, and uh, I would never dispute that. He's certainly in my top five, top ten at least. He's he's certainly one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, I'm, I've, and I haven't seen all of his movies, which he was pretty I, prolific. I see, actually, I see as a bit of a treat uh, because mm. that means I get to discover things like Dersu Uzala. I hadn't seen this mm. until we started to watch it for the purposes of this podcast, and yeah, I feel like something had. Even though I was really familiar with uh, Kurosawa and I kind of understood his filmography and understood the way he used film language and a lot of his general attitudes, I had never gotten the transition quite uh, quite uh, between early Kurosawa, like you know his better known works from the fifties, like uh, like Seven Samurai and like Rashomon, and his more uh, Subdued. Sort of, yeah, subdued. I, I was I, I almost maudlin later works that yeah. are, are have a little bit more of a tragic tone. Uh, stuff like Ron and Kagamusha, stuff from the eighties. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, there was a definite turning point, and that film was Dersu Zala, hmm. or more specifically, it was the combination of Dersu Zala and the film that came immediately before it, Dodeskaden. Yeah. Uh, which. Now, he, uh, what, what year was Dodeskaden? It was, it was the 70? early 70s. Yeah, um, uh, Dodeskaden came out in 1970. He hadn't made a film for five years before that, mm-hmm. and the, la- the film he made right before that was Red Beard in 1965, which was the last film he was going to make with Toshiro Mifune. Mm-hmm. Then they had a, pro- a very rich creative relationship together. The director they worked together the many and, times in a wide variety of very different films. Yeah, and, uh, and Toshiro Mifune is one of cinema's great actors, I would say. Uh, sure. And... You can see in something like Red Beard a kind of aging, a kind of a letting go story. It's about a, a sort of a wise sage passing on his knowledge to a young... It's about two doctors and mm. passing on to his, his knowledge to a young doctor. <clears throat> Dodeska Den was his first film in color, and it was made for a very modest budget. First film completely in color. Yeah, completely in color, that is. Uh, and it was like color elements in high and low. We talked yeah. about that, that film recently, too. But... Uh, it was such a failure 
and what uh, was like, received like a financial so far, like it was a financial maybe. it was made on a low budget and it was still a big financial failure for Kurosawa. Mm. He had never had a failure that of that size before and it was also critically panned in a way that it, his previous films hadn't been. Mm-hmm. And this it was, was actually, the first time that uh Kurosawa was was actually facing failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain artists who go through their entire careers and they don't know what failure looks like. So yeah. when, it, when they encounter a little failure, it feels pretty big. You look at some, like uh, my wife, Angie, she's a big REM fan. Okay. And she pointed out this out to me with REM. They started doing whatever they wanted. They just made the music they liked and it just happened to catch on. And so their first like eight records were just huge hits of them just doing whatever they wanted and the studios letting them doing whatever they wanted because mm. it was making them money. And they were touring so hard that one of their bandmates, uh, Bill Berry, got really sick on the road and said, I'm going to leave the band. This yeah. is too hard for Wasn't me. Wasn't he their drummer? He was their drummer. Yeah, which is a hard person to and, lose. Yeah, they and also R.E.M. was one of those bands where all of the songs are credited to R.E.M., not to, like, mm. separate members. Who uh, Michael Stipe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So... It, it may have been that Michael Stipe wrote all the lyrics and, and uh, you know, Peter Buck did all of the, the guitar, whatever it was. Uh, but they, they, saw they, were a group. they saw themselves yeah. as a unit. And they even said, they were even on record saying, if any one of us wants to leave the band, that's it. We're going to split up. Yeah. And when that day came, one of them said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be in R.E.M. anymore. They were thrown for a loop and they really suffered creatively, some have said, yeah. uh, when they lost one of their bandmates because this was the first time they faced failure. Uh, and I feel like that was Kurosawa's arc as well. He, I mean, he struggled, he came up, but he made these films and he was so confident and he had such a style and he was given, uh, from what I understand, a good deal of control over his productions that when he finally come, came upon Dodeskaden and it was a fail, like an actual legit failure, he felt like he had failed in life. And it sent him, and he writes very eloquently yeah. about this, he's spoken a lot about this, Kurosawa, it sent him into a suicidal spiral and he actually did attempt suicide shortly after the failure of that movie. Right. It really hurt his soul. It uh, made him just sort of see that he was kind of tired out of a lot of life and it wasn't until he discovered Dodeskaden, which was so out of his wheelhouse that he realized that films were still worth making and life was still worth living. The Dodeskaden was the one that brought him out of it? The brought, no, or sorry, Dersu Zala ah. was the one. He discovered this film that was so far out of his wheelhouse that he kind of was able to build I'm, his life back up I, again. I'm glad I asked because that was... That was sorry, I said Dodeskaden. There, Dodeskaden there, was the one that failed and Dersu Zala was the one that pulled him back up. Uh, Dersu Zala is the story. It's a Russian story and it's, and it's a, story. a true story. It's a true story. It's based mm. on a true story. Uh, and Akira Kurosawa had wanted to make it for a long time. He originally had intended to try to adapt it so that it took place in Japan. Mm. But because the story is so very specifically about geography, mm. it didn't make sense to do it in Japan. And he thought he could never do it. And then Russia, like people from Russia, asked him to come in and make a movie for them based on their Uzala. And he was like, uh yeah <laughs> let's do that and it's a big production for a variety of reasons uh it's a big color production he worked in 70 millimeter for the only time in his entire career it, which you know given the epic nature and like sort of widescreen photography of so many of his films you'd think a few of think, them would yeah, have been, you think right? he would have been working with like, you think at least ron but, would have been like a huge no <laughs> this ron, is the one not shot on 70 yeah this the, is the one Zala was shot on 70 and uh, and it was a weird tricky production because he's a japanese filmmaker he was working with a russian cast he was working with a russian crew he only had one translator the entire time for the entire crew the so entire cr- crew credit to that translator oh, i don't huge. know that cran- translator oh, that name, translator but, did a lot of work that's that's a big responsibility and the crew was constantly shifting out which normally would be considered like oh god it's amazing you got something coherent out of that but it's Kurosawa and he totally did the story is about uh, a Russian captain who is uh, put in charge of uh, creating new maps of Siberia yeah like the, the far eastern regions of Russia yeah. the parts that people don't go to very often parts that are considered all but completely isolated someone needs to go march through the wilderness and just take topographical maps of the area for the obvious reasons that we need those yeah, maps. And th- that uh, t- that was, I think, in like 1910, I believe, the first now, act takes place? No, no, no. It starts in 1910, but then there's a flashback and it starts in like 1902. 1902. It takes right. place between about so, 1902 or, and 1910. Yeah, first few years of the 20th century. And yeah. a, a lot of... Um, 
this was actually common practice for a lot of nations. Mm. Uh, if you read the history of Canada, mm. the, the Royal Mounted Police were patrolling not Canada yet. They were out in the wilderness just making sure everything was okay before they started yeah. you know, moving, you know, the country started moving across that territory. They did it more politely. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, and, and so, yeah, this, yeah. it's about a, a me, captain and he's got a small group is, of soldiers. Yeah, his name is uh, Vladimir Arsenyev. Uh, he who, is, uh, th- this movie's based on his memoir. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a rather dignified mm-hmm. gentleman and he's just there to do his job. And one day, over the course of his job, uh, they stumble across a hunter, a a short gentleman, mm-hmm. an odd gentleman, an unassuming gentleman who doesn't speak their language terribly well and seems at first to be the kind of person who might be the subject of light mockery. And then they discover that he's Yoda. <laughs> he doesn't he's, ha- he's, he, like he's, he, he's full of wisdom he mm-hmm. knows how to survive yeah. he doesn't and, have psychic powers but he is good at everything he knows the and land importantly he just sort of falls in with the crew they don't hire him mm-hmm. there's no deal he just knows that he knows they need help and he can help them yeah so just sort of out of personal generosity mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of be a teacher, like almost an airsats teacher to these uh, Soviet students, he he falls in with them and just starts leading yeah. them through the wilderness. So when the time came for Luke to have a Jedi master and also learn some humility because he was being a cocky little dick, uh, he gets sent to Dagobah, which looks rather suspiciously like many of the locales in Darius Uzala. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he takes meets, place entirely in the wilderness. He meets he well, not meets, entirely, but yeah. he meets a very short sage-like person who at first Mm. seems like a comic relief character because he speaks weird Mm. and he doesn't have the same values as me and he doesn't understand what I think is important as being important and as a result I just think ill of him and then surprise he's a badass and Darius Uzala there's a great scene where um, at first he just sort of shares their fire talks to them um, there's this weird bit where like the fire is making a lot of crackling noises and there's Uzala talks to the fire and tells it to shut up and it pulls out the only log that was doing that and makes that log stop, <laughs> which is weird, but not necessarily we're in the presence of a godlike being. What's cool is that there's Uzala is a hunter. He hunts, uh, sables and, uh, the soldiers are doing, uh, uh, target practice with their rifles and there's who's like you're wasting bullets and like brute soldiers we have all the bullets we want mm. and their target practice is they tie a bottle to a string and they set the string swinging mm. and they're trying to see who can hit the bottle and there's who's always like do you have any idea how rare a bottle is in this part of the world mm. can i have the bottle and they're just like well we're gonna break the bottle if i shoot the rope instead of the bottle can i have the bottle <laughs> and they're like yeah sure knock yourself out buddy <laughs> and, he and shoots they, the he, shoots the he shoots the rope the bottle falls there's who doesn't go aha rub another face he just goes punk all right then grabs the bottle thank you for thank the bottle yeah yeah and then he moves on and soldier's just like uh what the fuck was that <laughs> such a great moment yeah it's, it's such a wonderful scene uh, th- throughout these these wonderful scenes where he just sort of kind of schools these soviets there, there's no arrogance whatsoever in this movie no not, not even from the student and not from the teacher uh, yeah it's interesting because the soviets in almost any other movie you imagine that there would be like one asshole student kind of like resents one, this one guy soldier who yeah, or, yeah who, like, like he's gonna be an asshole and maybe try to fight him or something and it's terrible it's like mm. no there's like a couple of scenes where they're not on board with this dersu uzala guy and he very quickly proves that mm. he is absolutely sage like he knows the land he mm. knows uh things about tracking he knows uh things about how to survive in the wilderness he's also very nice and within about 20 minutes of this movie which is like two and a half hours long everyone's cool with him yeah because yeah. he's awesome there and get knowing the context i do that this was sort of the film that saved akira kurosawa from suicide it, it takes on of course a lot of extra weight yeah uh this is of course pretense but i think it you know does color the film yeah uh that he sees this aged man as being nothing but kind and having nothing but wisdom to pass on mm-hmm and the people who are following him have nothing but attention for his word. Yeah. Uh, look at some of his earlier films that are about, like, have you seen Drunken Angel? I haven't seen that one. Okay, that's another another film about doctors, or yeah. or even Red Beard from just a few years earlier. Yeah. 
And there is this sort of push and pull between the young and the old yeah. about how the, the older characters are trying to impart wisdom and the young people are kind of resistant to it. Or yeah, Seven the Samurai's are, got that. You know, uh, or the old uh, people Sandra's are really... About that. Yeah. The, the young people are very progressive and the old people are really stubborn. Like, that's... Yeah. Uh, I live in fear. Uh, this is... You're more of the Kurosawa expert than I am. So uh, I'm just going to... I've, I've seen I more. I yield to all, your wisdom but, um, is my point. Well, thank you. And, and I think that this is uh, maybe one of the only times when there doesn't seem to be that kind of antagonistic relationship yeah. between the main characters. This is truly just a character explore, exploration yeah. uh, where the antagonist ends up being the outside world. For, in first very literal terms where they're just sort of surviving out in the wilderness. And my favorite sequence is, of course, a very long sequence. A lot of people might find it to be very bad where they're exploring out in the middle of this gigantic field as it's getting colder and colder. Oh, we need to talk winters. about that sequence. That's really important. Yeah. The, the, We're going to get to this one, but yeah. And uh, Dersu uh, Uzala realizes that they've explored too far and they're not going to be able to get back to camp before the winds really whip up and freeze them to death. Yeah. So they have to start working immediately and work as fast as they possibly can. And Dersu Uzala isn't even explaining it. He's just saying, you have to, you have to start cutting these reeds and just keep cutting and keep cutting and keep cutting as many as you possibly can. Because if we don't get enough, we're going to die. He doesn't explain what he's going to do yeah. with them. And indeed, the guy... The, and it's just him and uh, mm. Vladimir Arsenyev, the, the captain. And they're just alone and they're out in this icy tundra. Mm. And the wind is picked up. The wind has completely removed their footprint so they can't find where they're going back. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they're really screwed. They're cutting out all these things, and the wind is picking up further, and it's getting darker. And when it gets darker, it's going to get so cold that they're going to mm. die. Yeah, the winds are getting louder and louder. Yeah. And the captain passes out before the job is done. And when he wakes up, he realizes what Dersu Uzala has done is he had created an impromptu haystack for them to like sit in where the warmth of the reeds would be the able to. Of their own bodies, yeah. Yeah, would, would be able to, to build together. This scene is my understanding, is the direct inspiration for the scene in Empire Strikes Back on Dagobah, mm. where Luke gets trapped out in the snow, and Han has to keep him warm in the middle of the night in freezing temperatures inside the stomach of a tauntaun. That's a, the, the creature dies, but it's still warm. Yeah, exactly. So its innards are still warm, and they cut inside, and it's this extreme survivalist moment. It's kind of weird that in Star Wars that the creature just sort of dies. Well, it dies of the cold. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 it, I understand it, that, yeah. but, you know, it, it kind of... It, it's, it pre takes prevents, the curse off of the fact that they would have had to the, kill the, it. That, yeah, like, it, yeah. Han Solo didn't have to kill this creature this, to keep, uh, it, keep uh, Luke Skywalker alive. If you really think about it, the scene doesn't make sense because Tauntauns are apparently, There's, like, native to the planet, so they were probably, like, used to the cold or, like, more likely to die second. <laughs> but, so just, anyway. I don't think it died of the cold. It just suddenly died of a, like, stroke. Like, something completely unrelated. <laughs> Some completely unrelated mm -hmm. ailment. Mm -hmm. uh, the animator had a heart attack and the Tauntaun just stopped moving. <laughs> they couldn't do the stop motion anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where the scene comes from, is the idea of two characters who are very close to each other, mm. who are going to die out in the icy wilderness. There's no villain here. Mm. It's just the environment. Yeah. And eventually, though, the villain becomes uh, time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in fact, they're, they're, this is a two-part film. The, the first part takes place in 1902, and the second mm. part in 1910, I believe. Like, uh, no, 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 it's like, it's like 1908. It's, like it's, 1908. it's several years later. Yeah, they, they, there's, there's, there's two, initial, different, two different missions. There's an expedition to mm. get this topographical map, and the captain meets Dersu Uzala, and they have a series of adventures in which... Uh, they run into various people. They have wonderful, meaningful conversations. It's, it's 1902 and then 1907. There's this brilliant, like incredible shot, one of the first times when they're really bonding, this captain and Dersu Uzala, uh, where Dersu sees, and this is also very Star Wars, he sees every single thing in the universe as a person. Yeah. So when they're like, there's like a plant, he, t he calls that people. Mm. When there's an animal, he calls it a person. He doesn't see a difference between things. He sees everything as val valuable and full of meaning. And he is talking about... They're making a joke initially. It was just like, ah, oh, Dersu, he's so uneducated. Uh, what is the sun? And he's like, it's a... What do you mean? It's right there. Mm. <laughs> it's a person. It's right there. Mm. And he's right. And there's this beautiful shot of him and the captain, and it's this widescreen, and... They are looking at on one side of the screen. They're looking at the sun. On the other side of the screen, they're looking at the moon. Mm. We've got this wonderful duality of man, the duality of civilization and nature, and 
we've got the twin sons on Tatooine. Yeah, there's the the shot in Star Wars yeah. where uh, John Williams is singing about yeah. uh, Luke Skywalker's plight. He's just sort of staring this out at the weird sun. intersection a... of Dersu Uzala and Wizard of Oz, like right there. It's a super <laughs> bizarre pastiche, but it fucking works, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so the initial uh, expedition takes up most of the first half of the movie, and uh, it's a successful mission. They survive a few death-defying situations, and in the end, uh, they say goodbye to Dersu Uzala, and they were just like. Is there anything we can do for you? And I love Dersu Uzala. Like, he thinks about it. And he calls himself a bad man. Because he's like, I'm a bad man. I shouldn't ask you for anything. But if you have any extra bullets, I sure would appreciate it. And they're like, sure, we're not fighting anybody. Take all our bullets. And Dersu Uzala's like, oh, okay. And you can tell he feels really guilty and weird about it. Because he just isn't that kind of person to ask for things in exchange for other things. Um, And then... There, Years go by. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Uh, I, I, I will not use the word innocent to describe Dersu Zala. No, he's not innocent. Uh, no, he, he's actually incredibly mature and wise. Mm-hmm. And he is the, clearly being written as, and this is all based, of course, on the actual memoir, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, this is clearly being written by Kurosawa as, uh, like, the aspirational figure that he's always wanted to be. I mm-hmm. think Kurosawa is. Or both, that he's always wanted to have. Perhaps. Possibly but I'm, both. I'm guessing that at this point in his life, uh, Kurosawa is himself both Dersu Uzala and Captain Vladimir. Mm-hmm. I think he's seeing himself as the teacher and the and the, the one who's learning. It's he's, a nice he's thought. Still, he's I don't still know. Like, <laughs> putting himself in a position where he needs to learn stuff, but he also has like just enough wisdom to understand that he has something to say. Unless there's like a specific time that Kurosawa talked about that. Mm. I'm hesitant to make that kind of critical reading about things mm. unless it's like super obvious. Like mm. when you're watching Chef, this is a totally random <laughs> okay. segue it sounds like, but when you watch John Favreau's movie Chef and the movie is very explicitly about a chef who was young and talented and sold out and started making corporate bullshit that was like fine but not very good mm. and then he goes back to his roots and starts making food independently and it's better yeah. and the whole movie is made by a guy who made a couple of studio films they started to suck and now this is his independent movie that everyone likes mm. that's that reading really invites itself yeah. but most of the time when i'm watching a movie i'm hesitant to make that kind of big sweeping uh, uh, interpretation based on the director's life, regardless of whether or not you're right. Well, regardless of that, well, it's no all matter, no matter it's beautiful. What, well, no matter what you know of the filmmaker, though, yeah, you can see Dersu is you know Dersu is being a, a kind of an enlightened figure. Yes, he he's uh, he lives in complete communion with nature. Mm-hmm. He's he at is, one with his environment. He's incredibly kind. He understands human nature to understand that. There are some people who behave badly, mm-hmm. but he's not suspicious of groups. Yeah. He's suspicious he, that some... He's never become cynical or yeah, defensive. There, there's none yeah. of that. There's a bit uh, uh, when... Okay, so the second half of the film is the second expedition. And when the it, captain it, goes off once again mm-hmm. into the same part of, part of the world. And he's looking for Dersu Uzala. He doesn't know he's going to be there. Dersu Uzala is old. He could be dead. Mm-hmm. But he's hoping because he really loved this guy. Like he just—he was a close friend, and he went through so much together. And Dersu Uzala saved his life. He would love to see Dersu Uzala again. And when they finally run into him, and it's a cute little moment where uh, the guy walks up to the camp. Oh, there was a weird little hunter out there, but don't worry. I told him we weren't doing anything important, and told him to leave. And the captain's like, "Damn it!" And he runs <laughs> off to find him. Where's that weird little hunter? <laughs> like Dersu. And it's all sweet and they see each other and they hug and it's wonderful and you find out that Dersu Uzala like actually made a lot of money like he had a great hunting season like right after their first adventure and then like yeah and then he talked to some guy about uh, like oh this guy like offered to invest my money for me and then yeah he just disappeared I don't get it why do people steal money? Why do people? Why would people do that? It's such a weird thing to do. Yeah. Anyway, I just do this again. That's, well, all, he, that's all he ever did. He was never going to quit. And this is uh, this is um this is where everything begins to sour uh, for yeah. Dersu Zala and, and through just sort of the, the through line of the film. Uh, Dersu Zala is, is almost too pure for this world. Uh, yeah. he, he's, and again, I don't want to call him innocent, but yeah. he is. And bear not, in mind, we're going to talk about the ending of this movie. Um, if you want to watch it for yourself, mm. uh, it's Which on the I highly recommend, highly yeah. recommend. This movie is a classic and not enough people talk about it. Uh, it's on the criterion channel. It is hard to find anywhere else. It is extremely out of print. 
It's very out of print. And in yeah. fact, uh, it hasn't gotten like a proper restoration. So mm-hmm. even the Criterion channel isn't is gonna, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's not going to look all that great. Like you're going to see like stains and miscoloration. I was I was lucky enough to see this in film school. And when I was I, I went to school at UCLA mm-hmm. and they have this wonderful movie theater just in the film school. Uh, it's a small movie theater. It's like a couple hundred seats. And uh, they would have classes there. And you could they would actually, when they showed movies for class, they would screen actual prints from the UCLA archive. Mm-hmm. So I got to see a print of Derisu Uzala. And it was one of those amazing prints where, like, it had faded a lot. And all of the color layers had been stripped away except for the reds. Mm. So it was like almost like this reddish bloodish sepia. And even then the movie was profound and beautiful. Yeah. But it was really nice to see this Criterion uh, uh, version, even though it isn't perfectly cleaned up, because the colors in this movie are very, very important. I actually want to talk about that, how it relates to Star Wars. But in any case, we're going to talk about the second half of the movie now. Mm. And if you don't want the story ruined mm. for you, now's a great time to pause it. Go to Criterion Channel. Watch the movie. I believe they have a free trial period. Uh, I think that all the streaming services I hope they do. do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they do. If not, I guarantee you it's worth the money. They have such great content there. This is worth checking out. So we're going to talk about the second half of the movie. Okay. You've been warned. Okay. That's my point. All right. So you're saying it starts to sour. It, it starts to sour, yeah. We we learn that he's been built. And it's like the, the outside world and uh, you know time and reality and the things that he had sort of transcended, essentially. Uh-huh. Are starting are not, to encroach. Not, yeah, starting to get closer. Um most most notably there's more bandits in the in the area yeah there's more people who are just up to no good there's, and there's not a lot of fighting they run across some corpses mm. and it's obviously a grim portent but it's not it doesn't become an action movie or nothing no no it's it's yeah. not a big deal they don't there's no gunfights between no. there's uh, a like bandits and people are getting their there's heads a really off. great sequence in this raging river where Darcy Uzella gets stuck in the river and they has to mm. he has to explain to people what he would do to get him out of the river mm. and like and time is a factor and you got to realize that they were shooting this thing actually like on location yeah, that was like, probably like, a really dangerous that, 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 bit was, that bit was like a hurt song movie yeah. like, we're really gonna put our actors in peril aren't we yeah yeah so that's mm. a really incredible sequence but um yeah, it he, all comes to a head when they think they're being tracked by a tiger well, first of all, they find like people are setting traps mm-hmm. out in the wilderness and they there's like fawns falling mm-hmm. in the traps and people aren't checking. Yeah. They're just setting traps and then walking away. So Dare Suzala is like, well, let's let's go undo the traps. There's there's a fawn in one of them and the Russians are right there. It's like, yeah, this is not good. Let's yeah. just rescue these these deer and let them go. Yeah, they're, if, they're not, if we're not there's, eating them, this is yeah. completely irresponsible. Yeah. And it's like one there's a wonderful like it's a static shot it's like okay you you men you go over there and find and they all sort of exit frame and then you just sort of from where he's standing where'd you find hey 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 did you find anything yeah i found a deer i set it free how about you i found a deer it's been dead for a while that's too bad how about you can you get me out of the hole i <laughs> fell in <laughs> it's like yeah let's 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 go let's go rescue maxim or <laughs> yeah um, so, so yeah, again, mm. civilization is encroaching and it's hurting the environment and there's a tiger that has been stalking them mm. and Dersu's always noticed it before. And what happens is the tiger starts getting closer and closer and Dersu's always trying to talk to the tiger mm. and tell him, we mean you no harm, please leave us because the tiger is like a god of the forest, basically. And what it boils down to is in order to save them from the tiger, which would attack them, mm. Darius Uzala has to shoot at the tiger, and the tiger runs away. And the captain says, Darius, you did such a great job. You saved us from that tiger. And Darius is just like, no, I scared the tiger. And now the tiger will run away mm. forever, and it's going to lose its confidence and strength, and I have ruined things, and I have brought ruin and curses upon myself. Mm. He has, in some respects, betrayed the land in order to protect the, these people. Mm-hmm. And he's, they say, ever since then, he was a different person. He was melancholy. Mm-hmm. He was sad. And was- then another day, for the first time maybe in his entire life, he shot at something and missed. Mm-hmm. Now, ordinarily, we would go, oh, that's too bad. No, it's and well, it's not. It's not just pride. It's not like he no. he, he missed and that like he it hurts his feelings no. like Bullseye in the Daredevil movie. It's, like if he can't use a gun, mm, he can't survive out here, and he doesn't know any other way to live. And and he does realize that the reason he missed is because he's aging and he yeah. can't see anymore. And there's a, yeah. a really painful sequence where there's uh, is it an elk? Uh, there's uh, an animal like it's an, an elk or a deer. It's, it's yeah. an elk or a deer. It's a large animal, and and uh, Vladimir is saying it's, it's right there. Let's and let's shoot it and 
they get really, really close. It's like, come on, we have to sneak up. It's like, and Dersu's always being very careful. He's being very quiet. And they're yeah. really up close to close by it. And he turns to, to Vladimir and says, where is it? He it's like, he's like, he's really close to it. We can see, see it, it in the yeah. audience. Like we, I maybe I couldn't hit it, but I get close mm. if I were inclined to shoot at it, which I would not be. But, and he, he's yeah. like in denial for a bit. And there's yeah. a bit where he like hangs something from a tree and tries to shoot it and he gets closer and closer and he still can't yeah. shoot it. And he realizes that his life is kind of over in that moment. Yeah. And again, if you want to make like a parallel mm. here, if you want to talk about Akira Kurosawa's career, here's a guy who just all of a sudden for the first time in his life with the best cadet, can't make a hit, yeah. couldn't make a hit, couldn't make it work. The movie wasn't like universally panned. Odeska Den was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, but, yeah, it was a failure. It sent him into a tailspin. And Dersu Uzala is just like, and that's it. I'm done. That's it. All of a sudden, this afternoon, uh -huh. one thing happened, and that's the end of me. And he just says, hey, a long time ago, you asked if I could wanted to come with you to a city. I, I have nothing left here. Can I come mm. with? And the guy says, yeah, sure, I'd love to have you. And Dersu was like, okay. And, uh, and it's so sad. And of, and of course. So sad. How do you think Dersu Uzala is going to take to a city? Not very well. Or living indoors. Even indoors he finds perverse. Yeah. And he even just says, hey, listen, I'm just going to go cut down a tree and like build a hut somewhere. I'm like, you can't really do that, Dersu. This is the city. Yeah, so there's no like, people own that tree and shit. And, and he's like, you can't do anything. Nothing that brings him mm -hmm. any sense of peace or happiness mm -hmm. or comfort or familiarity. Yeah. It's all gone. Now, um, uh, Arseniev lives in, he lives in a home. He has a wife and a child Yeah, and it's, it's a pretty nice home. Yeah. They uh, like him. Everyone likes and him. Every, yeah. Everybody yeah. likes him and they're treating him very kindly and they're saying, we're so happy to take care of you, but this is not a life he likes or understands. No. And there is a beautiful shot that neatly made me weep actually, where, where you kind of realize how, how much is being communicated just through framing Yeah, because it's a, a shot of the interior of, of uh, Vladimir's living room. Oh, and all he's, just, and he's yeah. sitting, uh, he's sitting like over on the extreme left end of the frame. And I think he's sitting at a desk and he's, maybe, he's, he's just, like, re he's just reading. And he's reading a book and his his son's his son in the is like, doing something in the foreground. He's the playing wife piano. Is, uh, is playing piano. Yeah. Uh, his wife is standing up next to the fireplace. We see the fireplace. And then over on the extreme right, hunched out looking a lot like yoda actually hunched yeah. over we don't see his face or his head we just see this like blob of, of of a man wearing a rag almost like sitting in the corner essentially in darkness is dersu zala yeah he is completely separated from everything that is such a beautiful shot it's completely and it's heartbreaking and just <clears throat> and the shot just goes on yeah, it's a just while. a static shot. Like, it's not, not so to a you're, comical you're, degree, but you just get used to the scene. You get used to the scene, and it's, your eye has to explore a little to to find him there. What I love about this shot is, is it's timed perfectly, because mm. you're watching this shot, mm. and you realize that we're lingering on this shot so much, this is not an establishing shot for a scene. This shot is telling us something. Mm. Because Akira Kurosawa is not a filmmaker who puts a shot in his movie just for the fun of it. Like, mm. he will put a shot in there if it means something. That, that's Ozu. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> o o Ozu put in uh, like little shot. Like, here's just a shot of the sky. Why is that there? Just to take a breath. Okay, fair no, enough. That was the story enough. again. But Akira Kurosawa, but even then, if to take a breath, that's for a reason, yeah. for pacing purposes. Uh, Kurosawa is having us linger on this scene. We're seeing just how, even when we're in the same room together, Dersu Uzawa feels isolated and separate. Mm. And the exact moment you think, well, at least I did, mm. the exact moment I thought to myself, Oh, uh, this this doesn't work. Dersu Uzal just has to go. Dersu Uzal stands up and says, this isn't working. I should leave. Mm. Uh, I would thank you very, very much for your hospitality. I should go. And the captain stands up and looks at his friend, probably the dearest friend he's ever had or ever will have in his entire life. And he just silently gets out of the room and walks away. And at first we think, he must be completely heartbroken. Mm. And then he comes back with a gun. You're like, what the fuck? And he's like, Dersu Uzala, you're, you're the best friend I could ever have. And of course, I would never begrudge you for leaving us and going back home. I'm worried about your eyesight. I have a brand new rifle. It will be much harder for you to miss mm. with, with the brand, brand new, new rifle. rifle. It's the top of the line. And Dersu Uzala says, thank you. That's very kind of you. Oh, and then God. he goes away. <laughs> and it's so fucking sad. And then, again, big spoilers here. We're dwelling mm. at the whole movie because it's a beautiful movie. And we want to be able to talk about it with a critical eye. Yeah. The end of the movie, <laughs> Dersu Huzala dies. He, uh, the captain gets a telegram and says, a... there's this mysterious man uh, who had like some indication that he knew you hmm. uh, who, has been, who has been killed. 
and we would like you to come in and, and check out the body and everything. And so he does. He goes like out into the woods where they yeah. found him, and there's yeah. just a soldier. Just soldiers well, there digging a grave, and people. Like, you can tell like people are starting to build more like towns around. It's starting mm. to get less like a wilderness, and the soldier is just like, oh, okay, so you know, okay, what was his uh, name? There's Susan. Okay, what was his profession? Hunter. Oh, that's weird. He didn't have a gun on him. Oh, they must have killed him to steal his gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then he just, he just goes, oh, my oh, heart fair just enough. Think about the scene I, again. And that's true. That's yeah. a true story. Hmm. That's exactly what happened. Holy shit. And that's the ending. Yeah. There's a bit of a prologue where we see that the captain, like, returned to where Dersu was buried. And it's interesting that he puts that at the beginning and not at the end because you have to remember it. It's a long movie. When you remember how the movie began, you realize that the movie starts in 1910, a couple of years after Dare Suzala died. Mm. The captain returns to where Dare Suzala was buried to visit the grave. And the entire area has become... I mean, it's not like bulldozed and paved but, but over. It's, it's almost like a, bull, a boom town now. There's a lot of yeah. people there. All, and the, he knew that Dare Suzala was buried between these two trees. Those two trees don't exist anymore. And, and neither does Dare Suzala. His grave has been completely lost. Mm. And he has been completely lost. And this idea of being one with uh, nature and the land, it's just gone. Mm. For better or worse, it's just gone. Yeah. Boy, is that fucking sad. What a uh, beautiful, sad ending. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I've seen other movies that are equally moving, things like Leave No Trace mm. or, or uh, um, Into the Wild. Yeah. Or simply Wild. Um, <laughs> About people trying people, to find themselves in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. How, uh, you know, civilization has failed you, and so the wilderness is sort of like your one true home. And all of these uh, uh, films, maybe not wild, but the other films are typically about how civilization will encroach upon that. Or what was that one with Daniel Day-Lewis, where he and his daughter were living out in the wilderness? Oh, oh was what like, was that? Uh, the the Ballad the Le- of Jack and Rose Thank it was you. called. Um, Thank you. I another one, it, yeah, yeah. Where, where they're sort of trying to live in the sort of idealized uh, off the grid commune, mm-hmm. and of course, all of these films tend to be about how civilization will get you eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's something really obvious, like an evil developer is going to build a tract where you live, mm-hmm. to the fact that, like in something like Leave No Trace, or also in Into the Wild. You're just not fit for that world anymore. You've been out in the wilderness so long and you've come to such a sense of peace that the turbulence of modern life no longer fits in your brain. Yeah. And that's something that was preceded by Darisu Uzala. Mm -hmm. He is not fit for the modern world. The modern world is 1910, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's It's, not even that modern by modern standards. It's not like cell phones and email. It's it's just living in commune with nature. And, of course, I watch these movies... I like going camping. Uh, <laughs> I actually so, don't. Okay, but I I do have a, a deep. I'm not gonna say affinity. You know, I'm not not. You that, care that about much, nature. I'm not that much of a dickhead, but you care about nature. I, I have an understanding of the kinds of person, uh, the impulse to leave civilization. Sure, we've all. I think, we've I think all everybody has it. that fantasy. We've all fantasized sort of, about. I've, I've fantasized <clears throat> about just living next to a lake. And that's it. Yeah, that's all. It, sometimes that's all I want. Mm. I know I wouldn't you're reading, last. You're reading Walden. You're like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. Like for a second, Walden, and they sort, yeah, sort of leaves that. out the fact that his mom's he's... paying for all of this and bringing him food. No, it's in the book. He's, oh, just, he's, the book? he's yeah, going yeah. back to town my, all the time. My point is, people don't talk about friends. that. They yeah. think he's all out there all alone. My point is, they don't talk about. No, no. He, um, he, he built. Yeah, he built the cabin. It's, but it's, it's an enormous privilege that he's got. That's my point. Yeah. Um, is brilliant. It's one of only two Kurosawa films that won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Mm-hmm. First one was Rashomon, and then a couple of decades later, Dersu Uzala, which is one of the reasons why it's so weird that it's so not known. People do not talk about this movie mm-hmm. as much as you know the, they don't, and which is why I think you know it's fun to fun, fun. It's you know exciting, really edif- edifying and exciting to discover that divide, the transition mm-hmm. between early and late Kurosawa, Agreed. and it was this film. Now, when we talk about this movie in relation to the Star Wars, there are, as I said, some very Distinct, clear influences. Dersu Uzala is Yoda. I think if you want to understand Yoda better, Dersu Uzala is the place to go. Yeah. And I want to talk about that uh, in a second. Again, uh, the sequence where they are trapped on a tundra and they have to think quickly and do something uh, unexpected in order to survive. Clearly, an influence for the Tauntaun scene in The Empire Strikes Back and the scene with the sun and the moon taking up the frame at the same time seems to have been a direct influence on the twin sun scenes. In A New Hope. But I actually think the influence goes deeper than that. Uh, for me, the big thing that Darcy Uzala 
uh, seems to have contributed to the way that Star Wars, and I think whether or not future filmmakers were conscious of this, I think they were picking up on what George Lucas was interested in and what the films George Lucas directed and produced were interested in, which is when we see new planets in Star Wars, they are almost exclusively defined by their environment. Mm. When we think of Dagobah, we don't think of a planet that happens to have a swamp in it. We think of a swamp planet. The whole planet is a when swamp. When we think about yeah. Hoth, we don't think about a planet that happens to have an icy part. It's an ice planet. Mm. The way that Dersu Uzala treats the various aspects of the wilderness at different seasons mm -hmm. is completely overwhelming to the characters and to the senses where survival takes on a completely different form from scene to scene. It is gorgeously presented. It's presented with enormous color. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think every time, I think uh, when we go to uh, that planet in The Last Jedi where it's covered in salt and then when you scrape it under it, mm -hmm. it's red. It's, it's all about the environment completely transporting us into an entirely new place and also a new mindset. Here's a planet that bleeds. You know, here's mm -hmm. Dagobah is a planet where everything is covered in swamp. Nothing looks good here. It would be the most shocking thing ever to find enlightenment. And that's something that I think is actually something that I'm not sure how consciously George Lucas was thinking about this, but when you think about the difference between the two Jedi Masters that we meet in the original trilogy, Yoda and Obi-Wan, when they fled, when they had to go into hiding mm -hmm. and uh, hope that the Sith would never find them, where did they go? Nature. Yeah. Hiding out in the desert, away from anybody. Hiding out in a swamp, away from anybody. Communing with the natural world mm -hmm. and not interacting with it very much. Something that is deeply profound and meditative and disquieting. Where do the Emperor and Darth Vader live? They Coruscant, live. Mm. a planet that's literally a city. <laughs> I think there's a comment there. And I think there's a talk about, I, when you look at the yeah. prequel trilogy and how the Jedi, when they were living all on Coruscant and how they got completely distracted by politics and infighting mm -hmm. and prophecy and all this bullshit that doesn't fucking matter. That's not what the Force is about. That's not what huh. religion and nature is supposed to be about. I think that's, that's the comment on how distracted we get. And I think that's something that we don't really talk about in Star Wars is this mm -hmm. relationship between civilization and... And nature, and the natural world, yeah, and, and or the many natural <clears throat> worlds in the case of Star Wars. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting, especially in light of our conversation about THX eleven thirty eight. Yeah, and how he sees technology as being kind of the undoing of culture. Yeah, uh, it's, but it's also really curious because as those films continued to be made and still continue to be made, we see less and less nature on camera. I mean, they were always artificial, but, you know, in the first... Some more so than others. In the first one, they're going out and they're actually, like, shooting on a desert planet. I think mm -hmm. in uh, the, For the Force Awakens, they were trying to recreate a lot of that, so they used mm -hmm. a lot of natural stuff in that movie, but... They did, yeah. Or like, and again, <coughs> and look at, look at uh, a, a New mm -hmm. Hope, where they see something incredibly natural. A moon. Mm. That's no moon. That's been perverted. Yeah, that's it's, been turned into... It's a technological into, thing. That's been turned into civilization. But look at, look at, uh, from uh, Attack of the Clones onward... Yeah they're all in artificial environments. That's true. And Phantom Menace is another one where they talk about how on the planet Naboo, mm. uh, Jar Jar's uh, people, what are they called? The Gungans. The Gungans. The Gungans yeah. and the uh, and the human species on Naboo, they live, you know, their their species rely on each other. They're kind of vague. They don't say how, but that's what they say. But, the, yeah. but they, they state it like it's fact and no one disputes mm. the point. That these two civilizations rely on each other and they've reached, they've reached some kind of equilibrium that is being disrupted by politics and economics mm. and bullshit. Um, Attack of the Clones, they start losing their way on that. That's, mm. that's, that's being kind of an issue. We do see some extreme environments. Of course, there's more deserts because it's Star Wars and... They're just all kind of knocking off John Carter all the time. <laughs> uh, the book, obviously, yeah. not the movie. Uh, the reason the movie felt so derivative is because everyone ripped it off. Mm. And at one point, I do kind of want to do John Carter as like <laughs> a, you know, kind of like we. This isn't the movie, but it, this it is the idea that they were ripping off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we might get around to that at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, but we had you know the the planet that's covered in oceans. We mm. had the planet that's. Uh, uh, again, a natural desert mm. that has been turned into a droid factory. It's also been perverted. Um, 
But we have, yeah, a, vo- we have a volcano like, planet to I think, emphasize uh, the tumultuous relationship. That one's I, not very I, subtle. I, I think one uh, yellow the the. Uh, <laughs> They find the clone factory, and it's on this big stormy planet where it's raining all the time. You know, the, the seeds of war yeah. whipping through the air. And uh, even if I, you look at even Rise of the Skywalker, I always want to call it the Skywalker, the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, it's like Passion of the Christ. Yeah, exactly. But even <laughs> in the Rise of Skywalker, I mean, Exegol is the planet of the Sith. What's the environment on Exegol? Cement. Yeah, it's all it's all just. There's nothing natural about it. Mm. There's nothing human. There's nothing biological. There's nothing earthy. There's nothing to connect to. It is all detached mm. and miserable. And you know the, what happens at the end of Return of the Jedi? Mm-hmm. The the creatures that live in the woods and only have yeah. like sticks and logs are They're able victorious. to yeah victorious over the the mechanical oppression of the, mm. the, the Empire. Say what you will about uh, the treatment of the Ewoks. I know some mm. people think that's a little too you know juvenile for the final chapter in the trilogy, uh, but a statement was nevertheless made. Mm. Well, it's not, and it's not a trilogy anymore. It's well, that, one that of, particular storyline was. Films that now, particular yeah. storyline was a trilogy. It's a trilogy within a series of trilogies. Well, so I, I, it stops, you're right, it stops yeah. having meaning, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not <laughs> going to complain if people call it the original trilogy. Yeah, it's just a good way to delineate at this yeah. point, even though it's one gigantic story at this point. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the, a lot of these things, the sort of division between the natural world and the encroachment of technology is something that did really fall off by the time we got to Attack of the Clones because George Lucas himself became a tech-obsessed filmmaker. Yeah. He, and I'm not sure if, again, how much he hates that that happened to him or how much he just sort of embraced mm. that he became sort of the forefront of technology when so much of the influences that he's been leaning on have been about how technology is the thing that's ruining the world. I mean, and indeed that's, as you just pointed out, that's one of the messages of star Wars. And you know, at some point on some level though, I think attack of the clones is talking about it, even though it does a kind of a piss poor job. Mm. Uh, Anakin doesn't become corrupt until he goes off to the city. Uh, Anakin doesn't but he, isn't he able does, to fall in love until they're actually able to go off to a, yeah. a beautiful <clears throat> oasis nature, nature planet. Yeah, you know? but but also keep in mind he didn't really commit murder uh, like the, <laughs> until he went back home to the desert planet where he was raised. You're not wrong about that. Mm. I'm not saying it's a clean mm. uh, metaphor or allegory. Um, the majority of Revenge of the Sith takes place on Coruscant. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's that lava planet, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a lava planet. It's bad. Uh, but I'm also I'm also <laughs> talking about well, I'm also talking about you know location shooting and oh, how natural these things well, look. Th- so but, even though but I think it's worth noting uh, that one of the few parts of Attack of the Clones that was location shooting uh, was the romance stuff. Yeah, yeah, because that was about human connection. Mm. They whiffed it because the dialogue and the acting in those mm. scenes are terrible, and that really torpedoes that entire subplot. But the idea. Mm. I think I think he understood that this one kind of needs to be in an actual leafy field. Yeah, this one that needs really to be can. looking out over an actual ocean. But at the same time, a lot of the romantic vistas were also yeah. CGI. There's a bit where he's like riding some gigantic pig monster, and that's oh, that, CGI. That is CGI. You're right because yeah. that's stupid. Um, so stupid looking. You know what? And I will say, it looks like, it looks like he's riding a big bloated flea. Yeah, he yeah, just yeah. had a big suck of blood off of some <laughs> giant creature. So it's weirdly. Star Wars, why not? Yeah, um, yeah, right? We ride these things. They jump really high. Uh, <laughs> I will say this. The line about hating sand, I think it's fine. It's an okay it's line It's the delivery dialogue. is bad. The yeah. delivery of that is really, really bad. It comes at a weird time, but yeah. the idea that he likes clean places because he was raised in a sandy area and he hates yeah. sand, I would that's... Love- Fine. I would love. I would love to see some. I would. Oh my god! What a great. I don't think people would do this because it would seem disrespectful to Hayden Christensen. But I would love to see just like a video of different actors, like well-known actors, doing that monologue and trying to make it work. Because one of two things will be illustrated: either it was possible to make that work, but really, really hard, or that dialogue is so bad that it's literally impossible to make it work. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see people try that out. I would love to just say, like, seriously, don't mock it. Don't make it a joke. We've all made it a joke. The joke's dead. It's tired. It's over. It's not inaccurate, but you've just beaten it to death. Seriously, try to make that work. Try to make that very specific. It's not super long. It's easy to memorize. Try to make that very specific speech. I'm going to look up that speech. Make it dramatic. Make it romantic. Make it wistful. Give it subtext. Give it it a little, little spark. Good luck. It's tricky. It's not a lot to it, really. It's 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 almost mm. it's sincere to an extreme fault because he's not 
talking in that scene in a way that makes him seem cool. He's trying to express mm-hmm. vulnerability. He hasn't probably talked to anyone who would be considered a romantic interest ever in his entire mm-hmm. life. I'm not unsympathetic. Mm-hmm. Problem is, he just acts like a weird creep, and frankly, so does she by the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you, you babysit him. <laughs> Like he see, was like here's, nine, here's, you were thought, queen, yeah. and he was like a nine-year-old kid. Do you see it's him hitting, weird? Do you see him hitting on the queen though? He's just nine, and she's fourteen. Yeah, it's weird, uh, man. Here, here's the actual line of dialogue. Yeah, the pa- Padme Amidala says, "We used to come here for a school retreat. We would swim to that island every day. I love the water. We used to lie out on the sand and let the sun dry us and try to guess the names of the birds singing." Kind of a sweet, it's a, a sweet, sweet, yeah. sweet, sweet line Sharing of memories of, of simpler and more nostalgic times. And Anakin, like she says, we would lay out on the sand. Anakin, he just sort of thinks, Anakin Skywalker, I don't like sand. It's coarse it's, and rough. It's irritating. It gets everywhere. It's not like here. Here, everything is soft and smooth. He's, they're talking about the textures of their childhood. Yeah. That's not bad dialogue necessarily I, I think i think his dialogue is a little best, clunky it's not the best dialogue i think his dialogue is a little better, clunky yeah. and could have done a uh, there could have been a pass put, on put, it. put like you know a couple yeah. more words in there yeah, like, give him a little bit more Fill personality with more, the yeah, sentiment is words. not the worst idea they're talking about simpler times mm-hmm. they're talking about their relationship to nature at a time when there's so much else going on that this mm-hmm. grounds them and gives them a moment of connection they talk about how they're different but also how they're the same mm-hmm. there's something to that there's so much stuff in the prequel trilogy that really could have worked. It's all the delivery that tanks it's, it. it like it's, and it's not just the actors. It's easy to single well, out it's, it's all one actor or another the, and say they're not very good. The direction counts. The the uh, whatever uh, the, the pacing editing, counts. Yeah, the yeah. editing counts. Even John Williams's music, normally 100 percent brilliant, sometimes it's doing more to tell the story than anything else, and it throws everything a little off balance. Mm-hmm. It's an issue. There's these things that are like beautifully Let's, conceived, but for whatever reason, I think there, there's George a good Lucas, idea in there somewhere. George but, Lucas know. fell prey to this sort of city dwelling THX one one three eight mindset when he was telling scenes that were mm. Dare Suzala. I want to see George Lucas do a Dare Suzala. Uh, like I, I want him to come out of. Re- he said he's retired. He's not going to mm. make any more movies. He says he is making movies like experimental shorts. But they're for him. And they're his, for him. Yeah. I imagine they're probably just like when he, when he was back in college. He's doing like mm. editing exercises and sure. stuff. We'll mm. see them after he passes. I hope it's true. I hope um, I hope there's a lot of stuff and it'll be fascinating. Yeah. To but I, I would love to see him come out of of retirement and make something that is shot with no special effects. Yeah, and it is about sort of trying to flee or come to terms with the encroachment of the natural world yeah george lucas's terrence malick movie yeah i'm I'm sure he has it in him yeah i mean let's be honest here terrence malick's tree of life and many Mm -hmm. of his other movies follow the same basic principle as what was it 2187 yeah they're not dissimilar um anyway that is it for episode zero thank you everybody for listening uh we hope we have illustrated uh just how cool darcy uzala is and why you should check it out if you haven't paused it already and watch the movie and come hmm. back to us uh, next week on episode zero. We are very excited to bring to you a sci-fi film that doesn't get talked about nearly enough that had an enormous influence on the creation of the droids in Star Wars. Uh, it is an environmentalist sci-fi allegory called Silent Running, and I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, please, okay, if you, I haven't seen this one either. So I, this you're going to love this. I think you're going to like this one a lot. Me. Um, it's a cool film, and we hope you check it out uh, with us so we can talk about it next week. Uh, be sure to check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network for tons of exclusive content. We sure would love to have you. Mm-hmm. If you can't afford to uh, chip in, we totally get it. Subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a review if you can. Recommend us around. That would help, too. Uh, and uh, regardless, stick around. we got a ton more cool stuff on the critically acclaimed network uh, for free every single week and uh, you can always write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want to talk about uh, the movies that we're talking about you want to talk about our takes on Star Wars we would love to hear from you uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim I am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold and may the force etc etc <laughs>